Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Let's take a trip back in time. The date is Monday, September 10th, 2001. The uh, topic today is an adversary that poses a serious threat to the security of the United States of America. That's the voice of then-Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. With brutal consistency, it stifles free thought, crushes new ideas, disrupts the defense of the United States. He wasn't talking about al-Qaeda or some other foreign threat. The threat was coming from inside the Pentagon. The adversary is closer to home. It's the Pentagon bureaucracy. The defense secretary called the press conference upon learning that the Pentagon could not track $2.3 trillion in transactions. The money had seemingly vanished from the books, totally unaccounted for. And let there be no mistake, it is a matter of life and death. That evening, Rumsfeld's press conference was the top news across the networks. But hours later, the world would wake up to Tuesday morning, September 11th, 2001. Jim, just a few moments ago, something uh, believed to be a plane crashed into the South Tower of the World Trade Center. Here in New York City, it happened just a few moments ago, apparently. We have very little information available. Our fellow citizens, our way of life, our very freedom came under attack in a series of deliberate and deadly terrorist acts. After that, everything changed. And the threat Rumsfeld was talking about, that poor accounting inside the Pentagon, well, it went on, but the topic faded from public view. This is Politics with Amy Walter from The Takeaway, and today, a look at the costs of our military and how the Pentagon is accounting for what it's spending. It wasn't until years after that Rumsfeld press conference in December of 2017 that the Pentagon announced it had been ordered to complete its first ever audit in its history. But just weeks ago, we learned that the firms hired to do it said they couldn't complete the audit. It just can't be done, they said. Why? Because the Pentagon's books are a mess of irregularities and mistakes. It's all part of a new exclusive for The Nation magazine by investigative reporter Dave Lindorf. In that piece, he writes that the DOD, the Department of Defense, has literally been making up numbers in its annual financial reports to Congress, representing trillions of dollars worth of seemingly non-existent transactions, knowing that Congress would rely on those misleading reports when deciding how much money to give the DOD the following year. In other words, nobody knows how much money is being spent at the Pentagon or where it's being spent. I asked Dave how he figured all this out. Well... First of all, I can't take credit for getting those numbers of the what the Pentagon internally refers to as plugs in their uh, financial statements because this was the work of a professor at Michigan State University, Mark Skidmore, who heard some numbers that didn't make sense to him and decided to research it. So he got a hold of all of these reports over 15 years that the internal auditor of the Pentagon, the Office of Inspector General, had done over the years. And he totaled up all of these plugs that were not, they, they call them unsupported adjustments that were made. And they totaled $21 trillion over 15 years. This is on the assets and liability side. It's an amazing thing. I mean, you just don't do that in accounting. So when you say plug, what you're saying is, all right, 
if uh, we're doing our balance sheets and we see, huh, we took this much in and this much went out, that doesn't match up. I'm going to have to basically plug in a number to make that number work. Yeah, that's right. So they just make it up. And this was said to me over and over by people inside the operation and people who had been there and who had since retired. Jack Armstrong, who was the senior director of audits at the Office of Inspector General for the Pentagon, told me that the uh, financial statements that DOD hands to Congress each year when they're asking for more money, should uh, they should say, you know, these are garbage, uh, which is what he said they are. Now, earlier this year, I guess it was in November, the long-awaited audit of the Pentagon was finally completed, and yet it actually wasn't completed because they couldn't actually finish it. So can you tell me what your reporting is finding and what the audit of the Pentagon discovered and how those two things work together? Well, first of all, let's look at that failure, uh, which is what the Pentagon is admitting it was, to have its first audit uh, really means. The, you know, Patrick uh, Shanahan, the undersecretary who went out and talked to the press after they had to admit that the audit was a failure, said we should get credit, though, for having even done it. And in fact, they've been stonewalling Congress for 26 years, refusing to put their books in shape to be audited, refusing to do it, and uh, getting chastised by people like Senator Grassley. He calls it stonewalling. So to say they should get credit for finally doing it, they were forced to do it by Congress finally, which allocated $900 million to have to do it. And it was a failure. I was told by Asif Khan, who heads the National Security Finance Audit Gr Unit at the GAO, two months before this was announced, that there would be no real audits. There would simply be thousands of deficiencies reported in a long list of things that would have to be fixed before they really would be able to do an audit. This was such a failure that, you know, it's like uh, Enron on steroids. If any company had a failure as epic as this, its stock would tank. So why isn't this a bigger deal? It should be a bigger deal. This should have been a moonshot landing headline on the New York Times, Pentagon fails first audit. Um, I mean, if you think about it, more than half of all discretionary spending for the federal government goes to the Pentagon. It's by far the largest line item in the federal budget, and it can't be audited. We don't know how they spend their money. And if this happened, imagine the explosion in Congress and in the media if this had happened in the Department of Health and Human Services or the Department of Education or the EPA, God forbid, Congress would go ballistic. But no, there's no response from Congress to this. There's no uh, big – it hasn't even made the front page of the Times. Is this because the military seen as sacrosanct and that – uh, it is not to be criticized, or is there something else going on? I think that's a big part of it. I mean, if you think of like Chuck Spinney, a uh, whistleblower who wasn't secret, who w went public while he was working at the Pentagon, exposing massive waste and fraud at the Pentagon during the 80s, during the uh, first term of the Reagan administration, he ended up on the cover of Time magazine as their man of the year. 
Um, and that just doesn't happen now. There's no interest in the media. You guys are an exception uh, to reporting on this kind of thing and recognizing its seriousness. And there was a different Congress. They were holding hearings on these frauds at the Pentagon at that time, and they don't do it now. So I, I have to say since 2001, uh, I think in Congress certainly, and also in the media, there's a fear of attacking the Pentagon and military spending because the next thing you hear is that you're not supporting the troops. Now, this audit looked at different agencies within the Pentagon. Some of them, quote-unquote, passed the audit. Others did not. But the conclusion uh, was that they weren't arguing that there's massive fraud going on or that people are taking money and out of the Pentagon and, and using it for nefarious purposes. Do you agree with that, that this is, is Not, simply no. about mismanagement and this is about, you know, trying to keep track of all of this money is really hard and they don't have the right systems in place and eventually we'll get to it. Just give us a few more years and, and we'll figure out how to trace this money better. It's complete baloney. First of all, the, the claim that they have systems that don't talk to each other and, you know, that they have legacy systems has been said by them since uh, the mid-90s when people were still using K-Pro computers. You know, they, they've had a chance uh, with their incredible budgets to buy, you know, a couple of Watson computers and, and put them on the system and to get it all right. But over all these years, they have not done that. And I was told by people that you have to believe at this point that this is by design. They don't want their budgets audited. And a part of the reason for these plugs is also, I think, simply to make their financial statements impenetrable. Uh, and, and I'm not the one who's saying that. I'm, I'm basically quoting people on the inside and people who've retired. And, and the other part is that the head of the National Security Audit Unit of the GAO, Asif Khan, who talked to me on the record, mentioned something that I don't think anybody knows in this country. Uh, it's just not reported. The GAO has the Pentagon for years listed on its list of high risk for fraud, abuse, and waste. And th that's astonishing. That should have people up in arms uh, th to have such a giant or uh, part of our budget way up on the list for high uh, risk of fraud, abuse, and waste. Nobody gets prosecuted or f even fired for these horrible accounting failures. At one point, Professor Skidmore found that $21 trillion of Pentagon financial transactions between 1998 and 2015 could not be traced, documented, or explained. What does he think happened to that $21 trillion? Is that being used, does he think, in ways that are nefarious? That no, those are, are well, they're hiding does. it on purpose? Okay. <laughs> Mark thinks some of it may be, and he may be right, but, but not very much. And secondly, remember, we're talking about plugs. They're made up numbers. They're not real money. There could be some real money in it because we won't know. We don't know. But we do know that they're making up these numbers. How are we ever going to find out, will we ever find out, what those plugs really are and what they're really doing or not doing? Well, according to Asif Khan and other accounting experts uh, who've worked in the Pentagon, uh, we're not going to get a real audit of the Pentagon for years, even if the Pentagon is dedicated to getting it done. 
that if they really wanted to do it, it'll take several years. And the reason for that is to do an audit, you need to have reliable prior year numbers. And they don't have prior year numbers going anywhere, going back. So they really have to go forward trying to get the numbers right for several years before they can even have a real valid audit. And that's assuming the best, which I would not do. I think these guys really don't want, they've made it clear for you know decades that they don't want to have people looking. Okay, but here's my question. So if we don't know how much is being spent because the numbers are made up, uh, at the same time, we're being told that there's not enough spending on the military and it's been hollowed out for the last few years. There was a congressional agreement called the sequester that froze spending levels domestically and for the military. And now, as a result, we're not prepared and there's a lack of military readiness. So what's your reaction to all that? Well, let's let's look at – there's two parts to this story. It's a little bit off track on the article, but I think it's important. There's, there's really two issues here. Why do we even have such an enormous – military budget when, you know, it's it's 37%, I think, at the last uh, count of the entire military spending of the globe is spent by the U.S. Russia's, for instance, often considered to be our primary adversary, and their spending has been going down. They actually spend less per year than Saudi Arabia, if you can believe that. That's according to the national priorities group that does that kind of research. And where we spend more than the seven other next top countries, uh, that varies year to year, but it's about seven now, I think, going forward. And uh, and some of those are our allies. <laughs> so it's really a ludicrous amount to spend. But then, you know, the second question is, when you look at uh, what I was researching in this article, the Pentagon has been jacking its budgets year on uh, year by these fraudulent numbers, which they submit to Congress each year as the current year spending and prior year spending when they're asking for more money. So if they jack it, uh, which they are doing through these plugs, then Congress looks at that and says, oh, they spent that much last year and, and that much the year before. We have to give them more. They're asking for more. Well, we should give them more because it's the next year. So I would say it, it's a complete failure. And meanwhile, the opportunity cost to this country, as I quoted Eisenhower saying, is enormous. It's schools that aren't being built. I'm just here in Philadelphia. We have a disaster of an education system because we can't get the money to fund education for our kids in the in the fifth largest school district in the country. We have uh, crumbling infrastructure. We we really need this money, and we're not strong. And peace through strength is by having a you know a solid, well built country with a well educated populace and the minimal poverty. Uh, it's not having a gigantic army sucking the lifeblood out of the taxpayer. Well, Dave Lindorf, thank you so much for coming and talking to us about all of this. Well, thank you for having me on. Dave Lindorf is an independent investigative reporter and contributor to The Nation. You can read his article in the January 7th, 2019 print edition of The Nation magazine on stands mid-December. Not everyone sees the Pentagon's incomplete audit as a failure. I applaud Secretary Mattis and Deputy Secretary Shanahan. That's Eric Edelman, co-chair of the Commission on the National Defense Strategy. I mean, this has been a big task for the Department of Defense. It, it's actually started a while ago. It's taken quite a bit of time to complete because yep. the enterprise is so massive. And it's a first step. 
The Commission on the National Defense Strategy is intended to be a completely nonpartisan group that provides an independent review of objectives for military planning. And I asked Edelman how confident we are that future military spending will be smart and effective. Yeah, that's a fair question. And I mean, obviously, there were some elements of the department that fared better than others, but a lot of them flunked in terms of being able to demonstrate where, you know, everything had been spent. This is a first step in identifying ways to improve the tracking of of exactly how the funds have, you know, been expended. And I think that's going to be an important effort going forward. We have to get the Department of Defense to the point where it's auditable. It hasn't been in, in the past. It needs to be. The best estimates that we've seen as a commission, we talked to advocates of defense reform, which we endorse. I mean, the department has to change some of the ways it does business. But uh, even at the, the high end of the estimates of what might be wrung out of the department in terms of increased better business practices and, and less waste, it comes to about $15 billion a year, which is about $150 billion over 10 years. It's, it's significant, and we need to do it uh, in order to run the department more efficiently, but also to, to be able to say to the taxpayers in good conscience, we're spending the money wisely, but it's not enough to fix the problem. Is it actually doable, do you think, Ambassador, that we can get to a place where it may not be a perfect accounting, but where it feels like, okay, maybe we're short a little bit, but it's not like we can't account for billions or trillions? Yeah. One thing I think that needs to, I mean, I I can't say that there's not money that hasn't been, you know, spent badly or that, you know, but I don't think this is people walking away with billions of dollars in their pockets. I mean, mostly this is just sloppiness and uh, the, the difficulty of an enterprise that's been at war for 17 years with lots of money flowing through the system. But there shouldn't be any reason, you know, why we can't ultimately get there. It's going to take a lot of hard work and a little bit of time. And it's true that everything in the Department of Defense doesn't work the way things do necessarily in a private corporation. Uh, but we're just going to have to be more more attentive and, and more careful. And it also may cost a bit more money because some of this is a result, I believe, of excessive reliance on contract personnel rather than having folks in-house doing this kind of work. And one of the things we hope is that our report which says that we need to have new operational concepts, new approaches, uh, will be a tool that Secretary Mattis and uh, Deputy Secretary Pat Shanahan can use to uh, bring the rather large and unwieldy beast that is the Department of Defense into compliance with the strategy. And that's a challenge every Secretary of Defense faces. We're hoping to be helpful to Secretary Mattis in that regard. That report Edelman just mentioned looks at what's happening within the military and makes recommendations to Congress and the administration on strategy and policy. In this year's review, his group found that the defense strategy presented by the Trump administration is correct, that our current threats are coming from long-term strategic competition with Russia and China. We're facing the possibility of nuclear threats from North Korea and Iran. Meanwhile, terrorism in the Middle East still remains a problem. But we also found that while the goals are correct and, in our view, and laudable, that the resourcing of this strategy uh, is probably less than it needs to be in order to execute an ambitious strategy like this. Edelman says the military needs more resources, and the report warned of budget shortfalls that could risk the defense strategy. So is more money the answer? More money is a part of the answer. It's not the only answer because we're on the cusp of a number of new technologies 
coming on the scene that are going to radically change the way everybody fights wars. And I have in mind things like hypersonic vehicles that travel at Mach 5, Mach 6, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, quantum communications, uh, robotics. There, there are a whole series of new technologies that are out there and which Russia and China have been investing in very, very heavily. In fact, we have a chart in the report that shows how much more they've invested in these technologies than we have. How much of what can be done to mitigate threats around the world needs to be done through diplomacy or through other means that do not include weapons or other military items? Well, quite a bit of it. And I mean, one of the things I think we stress in, in our commission report is, first of all, the importance of our alliances. It's very hard for us to accomplish really anything in the world without uh, working closely with our allies and the importance of a whole of government effort. There are a lot of things we need to be doing in these strategic competitions that, strictly speaking, are not the province of the Department of Defense. So it's important to adequately fund the other elements of the government that are involved in the national security area, not just the Department of Defense. H having said all that, I'm rather fond of quoting a lecture that George Kennan gave to the National Defense University in 1946 after he returned from the Soviet Union after he had written the long telegram in which he said, you have no idea how much more polite and congenial diplomacy is if you have a little bit of quiet force in the background. So. Diplomacy is hugely important, but uh, ultimately it has to be backed up with a American military power uh, and the continued preeminence of our role in, in the world. Well, I want you to address that specifically thinking about this administration. A lot of critics of the Trump administration say that we're actually denigrating our relationships with the rest of the world, the posture that the president's taking, that the focus on building relationships is not as strong as it has been under previous presidents. The America first seems to be coming across, even though the president says this isn't the case, but it seems to be coming across as America alone. So can you give your assessment of in the report's assessment of how those two things are working together under this administration? There's no question, I think, that there are concerns uh, that our allies have about degree to which the United States is willing to actually continue to do the things that the national defense strategy commits it to do. And that is essentially to uphold the global order that the United States created in 1945 and has basically maintained ever since. So they, the allies, definitely have concerns about whether the United States is going to continue to make good on its treaty commitments and security commitments to other countries. And unfortunately, you can already see the beginning of hedging behavior on the part of a lot of actors in the world. And there are a lot of benefits from the alliances. And, and I would say they are at risk in a way that I've not seen in my adult life. Eric Edelman is co-chair of the Commission of the National Defense Strategy. A report from the Cost of War Project at Brown University, published earlier this month, set the price tag of the post-9-11 wars at $5.9 trillion. That's five times what the Pentagon reports. Professor Nita Crawford is co-director of the Cost of War Project, and she explains the discrepancy. Well, the Pentagon is only looking at what they call overseas contingency operations appropriations by the Congress. And we're including other expenses, that is, the expenses that are associated with State Department uh, spending, medical and disability 
for the 9-11 veterans, the homeland securities spending, which is part of the war on terror, and interest on borrowing for the wars. So we're including all the associated costs. Right. So the Pentagon's allocation is basically, look, here's how much it costs to send troops and tanks and all of those things. But what you're saying is, if you actually add up the cost of providing medical service to the veterans who are returning, the deficit and the debt that we're now paying down, that's where we get closer to $6 trillion. That's right. And we're also including the likely expenses uh, for the post-9-11 war veterans. So there are 3 million veterans now, and their health care costs will obviously need to be paid into the future. And their numbers won't actually peak. The number of veterans that are post-9-11 war veterans won't peak until 2040. Do you have a projection then for how large this number could be in 20 years from now? We don't know when the wars are ending. So we could, you know, be at war 20 years from now. That would be extremely unfortunate. But there's no plan to end these wars. And the Bush administration told us when they got into them, these wars could last a generation or more. So I can't tell you. I can tell you, though, that unless we change the way that we pay for these wars, the amount of interest that we're paying on borrowing to fund military operations will well exceed, and it already does exceed, the cost of the actual fighting. The other thing that I have to say was quite remarkable to me that you wrote that the Congressional Research Service has not updated its reports on U.S. casualties of war in war zones since August of 2015. How is that possible and why is that happening? I I can't speculate as to why. I do think that it's possible because Congress has to ask for Congressional Research Service staff to make these reports. Perhaps they haven't asked. Another thing that could be happening is that these uh, numbers are more difficult to get out of the, let's say, Veterans Affairs or the Department of Defense, and it could be that they're having a hard time pulling them together. I really doubt that. I, I think it's more that the Congress has not asked. And in some cases, it appears that the Republican majority has squashed or tried to keep under wraps the extent of the U.S. operations. It also seems that certainly in in, in the recent era that Congress's attitude has been to say, look, we're in a war on terror, the Pentagon, the, our defense, they need this money. It's more important that we give them what we need than we do a really accurate accounting of where that money's going. Is that the sense that you got as well? Well, essentially after 9-11, the military was given a blank check and we haven't actually said no very often to them since then. And is this unlike anything we have seen, even, say, during the 80s when we also had a big defense buildup? Is it similar to that, or is this different? There are so many things that are echoes of the past. For instance, the way that we were promised that the wars would be quick, they'd be effective, that we would uh, find this good for the economy, that they were necessary. All of these things we've heard in the past about previous wars. What's different about this war is the way it's funded. These wars are funded essentially by borrowing, because we didn't tax the American people. They were not asked to buy war bonds. In previous wars, when there was a mobilization that was necessary, people were told they had to pay taxes to pay for the wars. Professor Nita Crawford is co-director of the Costs of War Project at Brown University.
While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protest against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Members of the military report to their commander-in-chief regardless of which party they belong to. But support for the president within the military can change, and often does, the same way public opinion changes. When President Trump was first elected in 2016, 46% of the troops approved of him and 37% disapproved, a nine-point gap. That's according to a Military Times poll of active-duty service members. But two years later, his approval rating has slipped. Today, that margin is just one point, with 44% approving and 43% disapproving. It's not a plummet, right, in support for the president. There is a little bit of a slip, but it almost seems sort of like a correction to how excited they were when he did get elected. That's Megan Myers, senior reporter for Army Times. Not necessarily that they thought that, you know, this person was going to be so much better for them than Barack Obama, but things were so bad in so many ways under Barack Obama that somebody new who says, you know, I want to spend more money on the military and I want to support our troops, there's a heightened excitement there that, like, all these great things might start happening. And morale among some of the troops was low during the Obama administration because... Sequestration was a massive gut punch under Obama, and you can go back and forth about whether that's his fault, whether that's Congress's fault. But for them during that time under that president, things were really rough. Did it impact their own personal bottom line? Or no. was the okay. It didn't impact their pay or their benefits or anything. But when, you know, when your whole life is your job operationally, it was a really big pain because there were fewer flying hours for pilots, fewer training hours. And if you're not going to deploy, you at least want to be able to go to training and simulate it so that you don't lose your proficiency mm-hmm. and you feel like you're actually working towards something. And during sequestration, training hours, flight hours go way down. And that was the real, you know, morale buster under Barack Obama, not necessarily you know, their individual pay, but just kind of their livelihood. Another morale issue that's been raised has been the military being sent to the southern border. The critics say this looks incredibly political, that there wasn't actually a threat here, and that the president, one person I spoke to said he's using uh, the troops as his toy soldiers. Mm -hmm. So is that something that you are hearing about? And do you think there is a risk that deployments like this do impact the morale of individual soldiers who see that they're now being sort of part of a political ploy. So first of all, like, you know, they're not sending they're not sending combat troops down there. Nobody's it's not, you know, infantrymen patrolling the border. So you have a lot of support people there. There are engineers who are building things, they're setting up communication stations, they're doing monitoring. And for a minute, that's like, okay, this is my job. But at the same time, you wonder, like, am I really here, like, protecting anything? Mm -hmm. Especially when you, you know, you're going to go there and you're going to build a wall and then maybe in two weeks you're going to tear it down. And it's like, yeesh, like, this really can seem like a stunt to a lot of people who are down there. But I think it's it's less about being used as political pawns and more of like, man, like we really had to like haul everything up, come down here, leave my family, you know, during the holidays. And am I really going to get to do my job when I'm here? Do you think that there is a toll being taken on especially those soldiers who are spending as much time as they are in Iraq and Afghanistan 
on a sense of sort of endless war. Mm -hmm. Well, the interesting thing now is so many of the younger people who are going to Afghanistan and Iraq didn't go the first time. So to them, it's kind of fresh. I've done several interviews with generals, you know, who deployed to Iraq or Afghanistan as, you know, captains, majors. And now they're coming back and they're in charge of the whole, you know, the whole effort that's going on maybe in Iraq. And I've asked them, like, are you disappointed that you're back here? Like, this is, you know, your third, your fourth time. And they say, like, you know, I didn't think and I hoped that I wouldn't have to come back. But they always feel hopeful in their new role and whatever the new the new mission is. They've always, you know, express hope that they're going to be able to do it differently this time or that progress is being made. Now, I don't know what they say in their offices, you know, behind closed doors, uh, you know, if they're just like swearing at each other. But, you know, at least in the public face, they express hope that they're going to be able to to get it right or that they have identified the things that didn't go properly the first time. They've learned from them uh, and that they're going to try something different this time. Megan Myers, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to find out a bit more about morale in the military these days from some active duty troops. My name is Patricia King. My rank is Staff Sergeant in the United States Army. Originally, I enlisted because I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, and I wanted the opportunity to kind of explore the world and explore myself, and I ended up falling in love with the opportunity to serve. And Staff Sergeant King continued to serve. I have been serving in the Army for 19 and a half years now. Even when it wasn't always clear that she could. When I first came out, being transgender in the military still wasn't allowed. And I had to come to terms with the fact that being myself was the most important thing. Soon I found a voice and a cause in bringing transgender acceptance to the military and it started right at home with my peers and my leaders. And what I found was, while they didn't necessarily understand, they did know my work performance, and they were supportive of me because they knew who I was. That support hasn't always been a guarantee from the commander-in-chief. Having served since 1999, I've gone through a number of presidents, and there is a change in the feel of the military as we have any leadership changes. And I think that's indicative of leadership changes anywhere. After all, as King said when she first came out, being transgender in the military wasn't allowed. In fact, it wasn't until June of 2016 when Defense Secretary Ash Carter announced that the ban would be lifted. Effective immediately, transgender Americans may serve openly and they can no longer be discharged or otherwise separated from the military just for being transgender. Just over a year later, that policy and the ability for transgender service members to serve openly was thrust into uncertainty when President Trump tweeted, Please be advised, the United States government will not accept or allow transgender people from serving in any capacity in the U.S. military. Our military cannot be burdened with the tremendous, tremendous medical, medical costs cost and disruption that transgender in the military would entail. For now, the ban is being held up by an injunction. Earlier this month, the Solicitor General asked the Supreme Court to take the case, hoping to bypass the lower courts and fast-track a decision. The Supreme Court has yet to weigh in. While the uncertainty weighs on Staff Sergeant King, her outlook is positive. She derives her love of the job from the support of the people she serves. I've watched our country build in patriotism as we've had to face this global war on terror. And having support, you know, when you 
go somewhere and you happen to still be in uniform and you have children come up and thank you for your, for your service. It's amazing and humbling to hear that. And I always remember to thank them for their support because our military couldn't be as strong as it is without the support from the people who we serve. And of course, she thinks of the people she serves with. We're the best military in the world because of the people in the military. And some of those people happen to be transgender. My name is David and I'm an army officer. David wasn't comfortable sharing his full name, but he is an officer and he spent most of his time stationed at army bases in the southern part of the United States. I've been in the army about 17 years. I initially enlisted for the GI Bill and out of a sense of patriotism, I have several family members who had served in the Vietnam era. David's reasons for staying in the army echo those we heard from Staff Sergeant King. I'd say the main thing that kept me in is the camaraderie and uh, the sense of professionalism. That camaraderie is the key, but it isn't the only thing keeping him there. I would say morale is high. We, uh, for the most part, really enjoy what we do. Uh, We all come to the Army for a variety of reasons, uh, but ultimately we all have to some degree or another a sense of uh, duty and uh, loyalty to the country. So I wondered how much that changes when a new commander-in-chief takes charge. I don't think there's a tangible difference in morale with uh, when there's a leadership change. Uh, ultimately, that's several levels above uh, where we operate. There are some noticeable changes, though. I have been happy with the new administration that uh, the pay increase seems to be more commensurate with what we do. Uh, for a good six or seven years, we kind of lagged behind the private sector. Pay raises were as low as 1%. Uh, which doesn't really even keep up with the cost of inflation. But for the past couple of years, uh, we've enjoyed pay raises above 2%. You know, that's appreciated at any rank in the military. David also feels more confident in the support from leadership. I would say that our readiness is uh, very high, especially in the last couple of years. There's more of a sense that if we are going to go into harm's way, we're going to have the full backing of the leadership and that. Uh, We'll have the resources that we need as far as equipment and otherwise to get the job done. It won't be a a half-hearted commitment. And when asked what he wants the American public to understand about service members, his answer was simple, and it echoed what we heard from Staff Sergeant King. I would like to say that we all join for a variety of reasons, uh, but ultimately we're proud of our service and um, what we do for our country. Uh, We don't expect any accolades or anything, but... It's obviously great (laughs) when we get them, but we don't do it for any recognition. Uh, We ultimately do it out of a sense of duty. And, uh, you know, next to my family, uh, my military service is what I've, I've been most proud of in my life. big is our active duty military. The end strength numbers right now, if you include the Coast Guard, and technically the Coast Guard is not DOD, but it is part of the military, it's about 1.35 million. So this is every soldier, sailor, airman, marine, Coast Guardsman who goes to work every day on a military base and does a military job. That again is Megan Myers, senior reporter for the Army Times. There are about 170,000 active duty service members serving overseas at any given time. 
But that doesn't include a pretty important part of the equation. That does not include Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria, because they recently stopped reporting those numbers. Is that for security reasons? Uh, yes. It, it's been almost impossible to get an answer from them about why they don't want to share those numbers. Yeah, that seems like kind of a big deal that we are actively engaged in military operations in these two countries and the people who are sending them there can't tell us how many people are actually there. Right. And it's, you know, you can ask and there can get tens of thousands in some situations, 14,000 maybe in Afghanistan. But a lot of that, I think, is because the number of special operations troops who are there is so significant that they really don't want to share the total numbers because there are people there who, you know, are on a base and they have a presence. And then there are people there who nobody's supposed to know that they're there. So they don't want anyone trying to do the math and trying to figure out where these other people might be. And beyond our foreign conflicts, we also have troops deployed right here in the United States. Currently, there are 5,800 troops deployed to our southern border, stationed in California, Arizona, and Texas. They're not sending combat troops down there. Nobody's, it's not, you know, infantrymen patrolling the border. So you have a lot of support people there. And for a minute, that's like, okay, this is my job. But at the same time, you wonder, like, am I really here protecting anything? And Pentagon officials are considering keeping them posted there for another 45 days. Given the recent confrontations at the border between border agents and migrants seeking asylum, the White House says the extension is necessary. But according to my next guest, sending the troops there in the first place, just days before the midterm election, and when there was no credible threat at the border, that decision, he says, was a misuse of the military. Dr. Isaiah Wilson III is a retired Army colonel and a senior lecturer with Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. And he recently co-authored an op-ed for The New York Times called Trump's Border Stunt is a Profound Betrayal of Our Military. We felt compelled to speak out publicly because, frankly, of the timing, um, the apparent intent and purpose behind the president's decision to deploy regular troops in support of the border mission. Our op-ed was intentionally not an argument about the validity of the migrants' claims, nor a discussion of U.S. immigration policy in general. Our purpose was much more narrow focused than that. It was intended and remains a critical assessment of the president's use of the regular army to essentially promote a particular political party in advance of a national election. Well, let's talk about other presidents, though, who seem to have used the military, military operations for political gain. And in your op-ed, you mentioned two of those. Absolutely. One was George W. Bush and the infamous now Mission Accomplished. And then Lyndon Johnson worrying about cutting and running from the conflict in Vietnam and sending more troops to Vietnam. How is that different from what the president did in sending troops to the border? The big differentiation is the president using America's military forces in this case, not against, at the time at least, any real threat, but as, as we termed it in the op-ed, toy soldiers, with the intent of manipulating a domestic midterm election outcome. That in and of itself is an unprecedented use of the military by a sitting president, at least in the modern era. I mean, there were plenty of Republicans who argued during the Clinton era that President Clinton, when he took actions overseas, that it was it was done to detract from or distract from domestic problems he was having. Do you think that was a politicization of the military and his role as commander in chief? 
from my perspective, and even at that time, when I was actually an active duty serving officer, I at that time actually did do an assessment of that very particular use of regular troops under the Clinton administration. And frankly, in my own assessments then, and I would stand to them today, I would put that in a similar category. Can you describe what it was and why you would put that in the same category? As I recall, it was around the same timing of the debates beginning the rage in in the United States over the Monica Lewinsky affair. It was a deliberate partisan political act, not on behalf of dealing with a foreign outcome, but really based on at least a mixed bag of intent. The point being that using an operation overseas to distract from political problems domestically. That's right. And, you know, part of the problem of this, part of the crisis of our own making here is the doubt that Mm -hmm. is raised when you have growing incidences of the government using the military for ambiguous, if not outright questionable, domestic political purposes. And how over time, it doesn't take a whole lot of those of those types of actions to raise doubt in the trustworthiness and the fidelity of the military to civilian authority and to the general public itself. The doubt that that raises in the minds of the soldiers and minds of the officers that are um, leading those soldiers in the minds of the general public of whether or not there is a real or a manufactured threat or whether this has something as much to do with or more to do with partisan political interests. Is it the mistrust that American civilians have of the military, or is that the mistrust that the military has with its own commander-in-chief? Both. There's the double bind, and there's the concern, the, the, the knife that cuts both ways. First and foremost, we have to acknowledge that in terms of the goodness of the American civil-military relationship, that consistently, at least over the last 30, perhaps even 40-plus years, Pew study after Pew study, polling study after polling study, um, has consistently shown the U.S. military as the head and shoulders stand alone above all other government institutions of highest public trust among the general American citizenry. When that is broken down, the concern I have is that the more incidences of presidents of the United States, commanders-in-chief, the government in general, making use and abuse of the active military for in the context and for the intent of domestic political interests and concerns, uh, that begins quickly to break down that fidelity, that trust, trusted bond between the American public in their duly elected representatives in their military. The doubt that that can raise in the minds and hearts and the morale of the soldiers themselves, questioning the fidelity of the orders, I have concerns that in the long term, these are the kind of things that adds to chronic post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder among the force and their families as soldiers inevitably and officers inevitably uh, retire and transition back to becoming regular citizens, go back and revisit the things that they've done on while on active duty, the time of service, and they question, rightly so, the things that we did on behalf of duty, honor, and country. Um, we can ill afford to send and commit good soldiers to questionable or outright bad uses of force because it has an unraveling, withering effect, not only on the soldier and the officer corps, but perhaps more worrisome on the um, stability and the legitimacy of the American civil military tradition. Dr. Isaiah Wilson, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. 
Dr. Isaiah Wilson III is a retired Army colonel and a senior lecturer with Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. He and two colleagues recently wrote an op-ed for The New York Times titled, Trump's border security stunt is a profound betrayal of our military. One more thought on this. The military serves an important physical as well as psychological role in our society. Those who choose to serve our country put their lives on the line to protect us. But our appreciation for their work and their sacrifice does not mean we can't ask, actually demand, to know how the government is spending our money defending our country. For years, bloat and waste at the Pentagon has become something of an accepted way of doing business. Many people already see the government as inept and inefficient, so why should we be surprised when we hear reports of made-up budgets and lack of financial transparency? But imagine if this were any other branch of government. What if we couldn't account for billions we spent on Medicare, or education funding, or transportation? Would we feel as sanguine? Probably not. Congress has lots and lots of problems on its plate, but where and how we spend about a sixth of our federal budget seems like it should get more attention than it does. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Amy Walter, and this is The Takeaway.